Season's greetings. Welcome to the Six Demon Bag Christmas Special. Now some people think that autumn is the spooktacular time of year, but the winter solstice is the longest night and the time when the larders run low and it's not only things on the roof that go bump in the night. So let us resurrect the old ways and delight you with some Christmas ghost stories from the Sixth Demon Bag. Bravo. The Wrapped House by Jeff C. Carter Jimmy quietly lowered himself over the chain-link fence and dropped into the dark backyard. He landed in a crouch and nearly tipped over, stomach and legs cramped from adrenaline. The neighbor's pit bull barked itself hoarse, alerting every chained-up mutt on the block. They were never going to get away with this. Chato struggled up the fence, rattling the entire thing like a dinner bell. Jimmy dug his nails into his palms. Why did he let himself get dragged into this? He thought about shoving Chato off and letting the dog have its way. Help me out, Jimmy! Damn! Jimmy grabbed his heavy-set friend and hauled him into the yard. The rusted top of the fence snared Chato's raider's jacket and tore it to shreds. The pit bull growled with envy. Chato tugged the remains of his sleeve. Jimmy punched him in the arm and hissed. Try not to shout my name out to the whole world. Chill out, bro. This shit is on easy mode. Look, they even gift-wrapped it for us. The house had been tented for termites, wrapped in gaudy red and yellow stripes like a giant Christmas present. Jimmy's heart jumped faster in his chest. He'd popped some zannies an hour ago to take off the edge. They weren't helping. Chato pulled out a knife and slit the vinyl tarpaulin, releasing a rush of insecticide gas. Jimmy pulled his shirt over his mouth and nose. You sure this shit is safe? Chato gave him a thumbs up, followed by a middle finger, and crawled inside. Jimmy looked back at the way they had come. Chato would be pissed if he bailed. He could deal with that. But the idea of his kid, with no presence under the tree, that smug look on his baby mama's face when Jimmy fucked up, he couldn't handle that. No more silent nights of gritted teeth and clenched fists. Christmas was almost here, and he was going to provide. He crawled inside and found himself face to ass with Chato. The big cholo was halfway through an open window. Jimmy hoisted him up and then followed inside. Jimmy's shirt had slipped down off his face. His head swam and he struggled to catch his breath. Is the gas supposed to be this thick? Do we need masks? It's been 48 hours. The gas is mostly gone. You're just feeling the side effects of being a little bitch. He pulled a pistol from his waistband and pressed it into Jimmy's hand. Time to nut up and do this. You take this floor. I'll head upstairs. Merry Christmas to us. Jimmy pocketed the gun and made his way through the murky house. They couldn't turn on the lights or use flashlights, but the streetlights shone through the termite tent. The house was split into pools of filtered light, dingy red and yellow, like rotten apples and bananas. It was more the smell than the color. Musty and sickly sweet. Something in here was decomposing. He ignored it and forced himself to take it slow. The owners would be gone for 72 hours. Chato was right. For a robbery, this was definitely easy mode. And anybody that owned a house 
could put up $3,000 for fumigation, plus a week in a motel and meals out, they had some shit worth stealing. He hunted for jewelry, electronics, and cash, but most of all pills. A pocket full of oxys with a street value of $80 a pill would go a long way towards a very merry Christmas. A dark figure moved in the corner. Jimmy dug into the pocket for his gun. It was just his reflection in an old TV. It was not even a flat screen, but a big wooden box framing a fish tank-sized bubble of dark glass. He knelt down to see if it might be valuable, like an antique. He stretched his arms all the way out, gripped the edges with his fingertips, and heaved. Nope. It was way too heavy to lug out by himself. His head started swimming again. He sat down to rest. He folded his legs, and it felt comfortable, familiar. He stared at his warped reflection, and imagined he saw young Jimmy smiling back, sitting cross-legged on the living room floor. As always, his younger brother Ben lay beside him in his underoos, watching cartoons and counting the days until Christmas. He could even see a decorated tree twinkling behind them. His eyes focused, and his blood turned to ice. Something big loomed behind him, like a giant in a cloak. Jimmy whirled around. How had he missed it? There was a Christmas tree next to the fireplace. It shouldn't have been a surprise. It was late December. The string of lights were turned off, but the tree was full of ornaments, right up to the star on top. He reached out to touch it. The needles crumbled in his hand, dry and brown. Had the gas killed it? it? Must have. The whole point of tenting was to get the poison into all the wood. He dropped the dry needles. They rattled against a box on the floor. There was a present under the tree. He picked it up and gave it a shake. It was wrapped up with a bow. He tore it open, hoping it was something perfect for his boy. He didn't want to bring home a doll. It was a gun. A toy gun, lighter than the one in his pocket, but still solid and made of metal. He pulled the trigger. It felt good. He spun it on his finger like a cowboy. The orange plastic safety plug in its barrel rolled around and around. He had begged for a toy gun like this when he was 12. He had worn down his parents relentlessly, to the point that he was positive he'd get it, up until there'd been only one gift left under the tree. That was a Merry Christmas. It was the last one he could remember. The red light pulsed as the night wind caressed the termite tent. He went to the window and watched the vinyl skin bulge and ripple. It looked alive, like the inside of a stomach. He touched the glass and fantasized about being slowly digested. If you knew it was too late to struggle, you could just relax and let it happen. The rotten smell brought him back to reality. Had rats been trapped inside when they tented? Maybe a cat no one missed? The stench was getting worse. He spun the gun on his finger. It was so heavy it nearly flew off. Shit! That was the real gun! When had he taken it from his pocket? He carefully put it away. The toy gun sat on the mantel. He went to the fireplace and double-checked the orange plastic plug. He remembered sneaking out to the shed and bragging to his little brother. He had chosen that toy gun for a reason. He'd used pliers to pull out the plug and sandpaper to remove all the decals. Finally, he had tagged it with a shot of flat black spray paint. 
Ben's eyes went wide. The toy had been transformed. It looked legit. Ben thought Jimmy was the coolest big brother in the world. It was their little secret, and Jimmy hid it in a busted tennis shoe in the back of his closet. He played with it every day until the day it was gone. Something sprinkled onto his head. He brushed his fingers through his hair, trying to figure out how pine needles could reach him where he was. He squinted at his hand. It was crawling with termites. They were still wriggling, unaware they were already dead. He scanned the ceiling. Termites were emerging from the corners, pitching themselves from the beams like brown snow. He rubbed more termites from his hair and felt metal on his temple. The fucking gun was in his hand again! He dumped the thirty-eight bullets from the pistol's wheel and slapped it onto the mantle. He chucked the toy gun across the room for good measure. A gun is not a toy, his father had shouted. Or was that the cop? It was impossible to tell. Jimmy had scraped his brain clean of the sights and sounds of that Christmas. He dug around in his pockets. God, he wished he had another Xanax. Everything was so loud after his little brother got shot. The police had been called about somebody in a ski mask running through the neighborhood with a gun. Jimmy hadn't been there to hear it, but he couldn't escape all the crying and screaming, the ringing phones, the slamming doors. Every day a new cop or reporter or relative was there asking questions, taking statements and making reports. None of it had uncovered the truth. Jimmy never told them that he had modified the toy gun. Ben took that secret to the grave. He held onto the mantle and watched the termites go through their meaningless death throes. The bright vinyl wrapping the house thrummed in the wind. A draft delivered a fresh bloom of decaying meat. He fucking hated Christmas! Jimmy pushed over the brown tree, revealing a narrow desk with its own decorations. Fugitive termites scurried out from the tree trunk. He stomped on them until his heels ached. He crushed the ornaments, too. He ripped off a brittle branch and used it to slap-shot the star into the fireplace. Lastly, he dumped the desk, upending a nativity scene and shattering a row of porcelain elves. Laughter blurted and bubbled from his lips. He felt loose, lighter than he'd been in too damn long. He sat down to catch his breath. There were oxies all around him. A locked drawer on the desk had broken, spilling medical records and prescription pills across the floor. He gleefully scooped them up like a kid making a snowman. An oxycotton sat on the toy gun. He picked them both up and sat cross-legged by the TV. Young Jimmy twirled the gun in the dark reflection. He counted the pills out, estimating the street value and his share after Chato's cut. Young Jimmy pushed the bullets back into the wheel of the pistol. Little brother Ben stared at him in admiration. The festive tree twinkled. Jimmy twirled the toy gun and eyed the pills. Maybe he'd pop one in his mouth. It was Christmas, after all. Is he legitimately being haunted or just hallucinating? So, um... What was rotting? A few months ago, um, our next-door neighbors had their house termite-tented, and they got robbed. Oh, Jesus. And apparently that's like an epidemic where uh, thieves will drive around, they'll look for houses that are being tented, and then they'll cut their way into a house full of poison gas so they can rob the place. And I was like, Assholes. that's like a 
good setting for a for a horror story. So yeah, I had the idea for a while, and uh, I was gonna write some overblown sci-fi story about this weird termite colony that was like gonna take over the thieves' brains. But I was like, you know what? I'll, it just makes it a quick little ghost story. Wait, so but was he just hallucinating the smell too, or? No, something. There just was some, some rats or something. There was some food that was rotting. My idea was like it was the presence of death. Right, right, right. That's um, cool. No, I like that. And when he looked into the old TV, he was all these memories that he had suppressed were coming up of his little brother and that Christmas where he had gotten the toy gun and modified it to look like a real gun. One of the things I kind of challenged myself uh, to try in that story was something I'd read uh, from M.R. James who is, you know, the the master of the uh, gothic English ghost story. And, um, you know, in, in brief, his rules for a ghost story were, uh, it must have five things. The pretense of truth, a pleasing terror, no gratuitous bloodshed or sex, no explanation of the machinery, and the setting as those of the writer's and reader's own day. And just as a a side note, what's kind of funny to me about the fact that M.R. James wrote all these great gothic ghost stories. And now everyone, when they think about a ghost story, they think about like people in tweed jackets and bowler hats. And they go back to M.R. James. They go back to M.R. James's time when his whole thing about ghost stories was it should be in your day and age Mm. so you can relate to it and it should be scary. Side, side note. My story has none of those things. And a few of the don'ts. It's all bloodshed and sex. <laughs> this is my uh, one of my two favorite Ambrose Beer stories, The Man and the Snake. It is of veritable report and attested of so many that there be now of wise and learned none to gainsay it, that ye serpent his eye hath a magnetic property... Whoso falleth into his phasion is drawn towards it despite of his will, and perisheth miserable by ye creature his bite. Stretched at ease upon a sofa, in gown and slippers, Harker Brayton smiled as he read the foregoing sentence in Old Morrister's Marvels of Science. The only marvel in this matter, he said to himself, is that the wise and learned in Morrister's day should have believed such nonsense as is rejected by most of even the ignorant in ours. A train of reflections followed, for Brayton was a man of thought, and he unconsciously lowered his book without altering the direction of his eyes. As soon as the volume had gone below the line of sight, something in an obscure corner of the room recalled his attention to his surroundings. What he saw in the shadow under his bed were two small points of light, apparently about an inch apart. They might have been reflections of the gas jet above him in metal railheads. He gave them but little thought and resumed his reading. A moment later, something, some impulse which it did not occur to him to analyze, impelled him to lower the book again and seek for what he saw before. The points of light were still there. They seemed to have become brighter than before, shining with a greenish luster, which he had not at first observed. He thought, too, that they might have moved a trifle, were somewhat nearer. They were still too much in the shadow, however, to reveal their nature and origin to an indolent attention, and he resumed his reading. Suddenly, something in the text suggested a thought which made him start and drop the book for the third time to the side of the sofa, whence, escaping from his hand, it fell sprawling to the floor back upward. 
Brayton, half-risen, was staring intently into the obscurity beneath the bed, where the points of light shone with, it seemed to him, an added fire. His attention was now fully aroused, his gaze eager and imperative. It disclosed almost directly beneath the footrail of the bed the coils of a large serpent. The points of light were its eyes, its horrible head thrust flatly forth from the innermost coil and resting upon the outermost, was directed straight toward him, the definition of the wide, brutal jaw on the idiot-like forehead serving to show the direction of its malevolent gaze. The eyes were no longer merely luminous points. They looked into his own with a meaning, a malign significance. Brayton rose to his feet and prepared to back softly away from the snake, without disturbing it if possible, and through the door. People retire so from the presence of the great, for greatness is power, and power is a menace. He knew that he could walk backward without obstruction and find the door without error. Should the monster follow, the taste which had plastered the walls with paintings had consistently supplied a rack of murderous oriental weapons from which he could snatch one to suit the occasion. In the meantime, the snake's eyes burned with a more pitiless malevolence than ever. Brayton lifted his right foot off the floor to step backward. That moment, he felt a strong aversion to doing so. I am accounted brave, he murmured. Is bravery then no more than pride, because there are none to witness the shame? Shall I retreat? He was steadying himself with his right hand upon the back of a chair, his foot suspended. Nonsense, he said aloud. I am not so great a coward as to fear to seem to myself afraid. He lifted the foot a little higher by slightly bending the knee and thrust it sharply to the floor an inch in front of the other. He could not think how that had occurred. A trial with the left foot had the same result. It was again in advance of the right. The hand upon the chair back was grasping it. The arm was straight, reaching somewhat backward. One might have seen that he was reluctant to lose his hold. The snake's malignant head was still thrust forth from the inner coil as before, the neck level. It had not moved, but its eyes were now electric sparks radiating an infinity of luminous needles. The man had an ashy pallor. Again, he took a step forward, and another, partly dragging the chair, which, when finally released, fell upon the floor with a crash. The man groaned. The snake made neither sound nor motion, but its eyes were two dazzling suns. The reptile itself was wholly concealed by them. They gave off enlarging rings of rich and vivid colors, which at their greatest expansion successfully vanished like soap bubbles. They seemed to approach his very face, and anon were an immeasurable distance away. He heard somewhere the continual throbbing of a great drum with desultory bursts of far music, inconceivably sweet like the tones of an aeolian harp. He knew it for the sunrise melody of Memnon's statue, and thought he stood in the Nile-side reeds, hearing with exalted sense that immortal anthem through the silence of the centuries. The music ceased. Rather, it became by insensible degrees the distant roll of a retreating thunderstorm. A landscape glittering with sun and rain stretched before him, arched with a vivid rainbow, framing in its giant curve a hundred visible cities. In the middle distance, a vast serpent wearing a crown reared its head out of its voluminous convolutions and looked at him with his dead mother's eyes. Suddenly, this enchanting landscape seemed to rise swiftly upward like the drop scene at a theater and vanished in a blank. Something struck him a hard blow upon the face and breast. He had fallen to the floor. The blood ran from his broken nose and his bruised lips. For a moment, he was dazed and stunned and lay with closed eyes, his face against the door. In a few moments he had recovered and then realized that his fall by withdrawing his eyes had broken the spell which had held him. 
He felt that now, by keeping his gaze averted, he would be able to retreat, but the thought of the serpent, within a few feet of his head yet unseen, perhaps in the very act of springing upon him and throwing its coils about his throat, was too horrible. He lifted his head, stared again into those baleful eyes, and was again in bondage. The snake had not moved, and appeared somewhat to have lost its power upon the imagination. The gorgeous illusions of a few moments before were not repeated. Beneath that flat and brainless brow, its black, beady eyes simply glittered, as at first with an expression unspeakably malignant. It was as if the creature, knowing its triumph assured, had determined to practice no more alluring wiles. Now ensued a fearful scene. The man, prone upon the floor within a yard of his enemy, raised the upper part of his body upon his elbows, his head thrown back, his legs extended to their full length. His face was white between its gouts of blood. His eyes were strained open to their uttermost expansion. There was froth upon his lips. It dropped off in flakes. Strong convulsions ran through his body, making almost serpentine undulations. He bent himself at the waist, shifting his legs from side to side, and every moment left him a little nearer to the snake. He thrust his hands forward to brace himself back, yet constantly advanced upon his elbows. Dr. Druring and his wife sat in the library. The scientist was in rare good humor. I have just obtained, by exchange with another collector, he said, a splendid specimen of the Ophiophagus. And what may that be, the lady inquired, with a somewhat languid interest. Why, bless my soul, what profound ignorance. My dear, a man who ascertains after marriage that his wife does not know Greek is entitled to a divorce. The Ophiophagus is a snake which eats other snakes. Uh, I hope it will eat all yours, she said, absently shifting the lamp. But how does it get the other snakes? By charming them, I suppose. That is just like you, dear, said the doctor, with an affect affectation of petulance. You know how irritating it is to me, any allusion to that vulgar superstition about the snake's power of fascination. The conversation was interrupted by a mighty cry which rang through the silent house like the voice of a demon shouting in a tomb. Again and again it sounded with terrible distinctness. They sprang to their feet. The man confused, the lady pale and speechless with fright. Almost before the echoes of the last cry had died away, the doctor was out of the room, springing up the staircase two steps at a time. In the corridor in front of Brayton's chamber, he met some servants who had come from the upper floor. Together they rushed at the door without knocking. It was unfastened and gave away. Brayton lay upon his stomach on the floor, dead. His head and arms were partly concealed under the footrail of the bed. They pulled the body away, turning it upon the back. The face was daubed with blood and froth, the eyes wide open, staring, a dreadful sight. "'Died in a fit,' said the scientist, bending his knee and placing his hand upon the heart. While in that position, he happened to glance under the bed. "'Good God!' he added. "'How did this thing get in here?' He reached under the bed, pulled out the snake, and flung it, still coiled, to the center of the room, whence, with a harsh, shuffling sound, it slid across the polished floor till it stopped by the wall, where it lay without motion. It was a stuffed snake. Its eyes were two shoe buttons. So he whipped himself into a fervor over a fake snake? Yeah, over one of the kids' like stuffed oh, snakes. Oh, what an a-hole. I was thinking it was kind of like my story, where someone had the seeds of their own destruction, you know, inside them, and they were being drawn towards it. Yeah, when you were talking about it, I was like, eh, I'm about to read that. But <laughs> okay. Well, was he... I, I, I think I zoned out a little in the beginning. Was he, like, a bad guy? 
No, he was like this world traveler, and he was always trying to like uh, kind of prove himself and all this to himself. And oh, I see. He was overcompensating for his, you know. Hence the snake imagery. Yeah. With the snake that ate snakes. Yeah. Although that wasn't even the stuffed snake. That was some other snake. Yeah. But I think we're supposed to take some resonance between the two in the story because it's the one that scientist is talking about. Yeah. It was all in his mind. That wow. was a, a, quite a twist. Yep. Yeah. But especially when it was tripping out and like he saw that ancient city with yeah, the giant he crown was serpent. Really and, blowing his mind. Yeah. And shit. <laughs> I was like, oh awesome. There's like this ancient snake and the yeah. I was like it's all Lovecraftian and Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. I couldn't tell whether it snake. bit him or hypnotized him or what. Yeah, he was crawling towards it. He couldn't resist it and shit. It was just a stuffed snake. Ambrose Beers is like that he the horror is always just stupidity. What time period is that? Um, he would have written this, wrote this probably in the 1880s, I think, or something. Mm. He was around in the 18s. He was the only uh, guy to write fiction about the Civil War who had been in the Civil War. Wow. And his Civil War stories are awesome. They're really good. He I'm did a sure. occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. He does a lot of weird Civil War stories. Horseman in the Sky is one of my favorites. It's about a sniper shooting a cavalryman off a cliff and him and the horse come crashing down. I have some reading to do. Merry Christmas. I call this story tentatively Frozen North. With Christmas only a day away, preparations at the North Pole were in full swing. Trees were trimmed, toys were made, and Santa's boots were polished to a high mirror shine. In the stables, the reindeer were fed and groomed, hung about with silver bells which rang softly even when still. Strings of lights shone like stars, and the glow from countless ornate fireplaces bathed workshop house and all the grounds in a comforting blanket of warmest orange, a perpetual magic hour. In the comfy master bedroom, adorned with large squashy red and green cushions, the fire crackling away, Santa made a few last revisions to his ever-growing list. Mrs. Claus gave him a hug and patted his cheek. Don't work too hard, she smiled. You'll worry yourself sick on Christmas Eve. Always with my best interests at heart, the jolly old man replied. The only thing I love more than Christmas is you, Mrs. Claus. With all the love and cheer and smoky warmth in the air, one could almost forget the bone-biting freeze and leaden snow crashing down outside. It was deathly cold and no mistake, the firelight reaching only so far into the bitter blackness on all sides, and that is why it was so interesting to see a lone figure stumble out of the dark. A man-shaped silhouette huddled against the cold but not dressed for it. Plain clothes, the fabric a solid sheet of ice. This was the North Pole. The figure found the door, knocked feebly upon the wood, then slumped in the jam. One last vaporous breath escaping from its lips before slowly crystallizing to fuse with its clothing. Not long after, Santa himself, in finishing his list and heading for the workshop, exited his door and received a shock. Ho, 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 heavens! He exclaimed ere he dove from the sight. There's a corpse on my doorstep! On Christmas Eve night! How could this happen? How could this be? Help me in with him, elves, and we'll see what we see. The elves gathered round and heaved the blue body in by the fire. They wondered where the man, for man he was, could possibly have come from. How he could have made it all the way to the North Pole with nothing but tattered jeans and a sweater. Not even shoes on his feet. And most disturbing of all, how a human could have made contact with Santa's village at all, it being reserved for those of a supernatural makeup. As they pondered these questions, a wonder occurred. 
A puff of vapor rose from the man's lips once again. He shivered and some color returned to his frost-bitten cheeks. Those gathered gasped. The man was alive. As befitting his station, Santa took charge. Get him closer to the fire. Bring blankets, hot water bottles, hot chocolate, maybe with some bite. The elves scrambled to fulfill the requests as Santa rubbed life into the man's arms. Eventually, the eyes focused and looked into Santa's face, finding his jolly features marred by worry, though rosy nonetheless. There now, that's better, eh? That jolly face asked. You mind telling me just how you ended up here? And for that matter, who you are? The man opened his mouth and Santa leaned in for an answer. Elsewhere, the elves gathered the finest, warmest blankets, the hottest water bottles, and hot chocolates spiked with the finest hundred-year-old whiskey, and hurried it all back to the parlor. But as they cleared the doorway, their spirits sank. There was no one to give it all to. Santa stood alone in the room, entranced by the fire. Santa? they asked. Where is the man? Eh? W what man? he replied. The man that was here. The frozen man. Oh, yes, he managed through a throat that needed clearing. <clears throat> well, he's, uh, he's gone. The elves couldn't understand. The man was right there a moment ago. Could he possibly have wandered back into the cold? And why would Santa let that happen? Speaking of Santa, he seemed uncomfortable now, adjusting his collar and working harder to clear that lump in his throat. He was also standing in front of a bundle on the floor as though he didn't want them to see it. A senior elf turned to his junior, employing him to fetch Mrs. Claus. Something wasn't right here. Mrs. Claus came trotting in on the arm of the elf, happy as you please, never for a moment considering something could genuinely be wrong with her angelic husband. And there he was now, gazing down at the fire, calm as still waters. Santa? the elf implored, echoing an earlier moment. Where are the other elves? Santa turned toward them, a strange, vacant, vacuous blackness in the usually sparkling eyes. Mrs. Claus, for the first time in her life, felt concern, and it was not a sensation she enjoyed. Dear, she asked, what's wrong? She stepped across the carpet, pausing when her shoes made a squish, but thinking nothing of it in the face of this strange, new, totally alien circumstance. She took Santa's soft yet powerful arms in her friendly hands and leaned close, studying the face that wasn't quite the one she was accustomed to. Papa? And Santa answered, not with words, but an otherworldly howl like the darker creatures of legend the elf had heard about in tales told around the Christmas Eve fire. Mrs. Claw's eyes grew wide. Involuntarily, she reared back, but Santa had her arms now. He brought his face closer to hers as the elf shrank to the corner in fright. The wailing howl continued, lengthening and amplifying in the close space, the smoke from the fire choking their lungs and making their eyes water. The elf noticed something in the hearth, a lump of twisted meat and green and red cloth, mostly red, charring to cinder while the black smoke billowed around it. Santa's face was too close. It was touching Mrs. Claus, but it had further to go. It was inside her face, through it, merging with it as her screams merged with the howling, ratcheting, metallic wail. Santa's clothes tore away, revealing a bulging, veiny, boiling form which melted into a mass of globular, slimy, pulsating flesh, elongating, breaking, and reforming as Santa and Mrs. Claus became something else entirely. The elf cast his gaze anywhere but at the form, but everywhere he looked, he saw the evidence of the creature's past activity. An elf arm here, a still twinkling Santa eyeball there, and every glimpse brought him closer to madness. When the whales finally died and he dared look back, all the elf saw was a normal-looking Santa gazing into the fire. Eventually he looked up, the voids of his eyes coming to rest upon the elf. No, Santa said, clearing his throat. 
Let's see about the stables. The end. <laughs> Veiny globular. Was he the thing? <laughs> he was the thing. Awesome. The thing found his way to the North Pole. That's funny. Awesome. <laughs> That's a really high concept, really well executed, very succinct, very on theme. <laughs> I tip uh, my Santa hat to you, sir. Mm. <laughs> it's funny how hard it is to decide whether the... Because in these sessions that we do, you have a very short amount of time to tell your story. I mean, you, you should have a very short amount of time to tell your story. And so it's like, okay, does he take over an elf? And then they have a quorum, and then they do a blood test. <laughs> does he take over the reindeer first? They stick a candy cane. And yeah, they stick a finger oh, yeah. what, do you, what do I do with candy canes? <laughs> you know, Eventually, he just... Had to go for the headman himself right off the bat. Fantastic. Well, the beauty of good. short stories. Well done. It is a shame you do not write more um, and you don't write more short stories because, damn, you turn these fuckers out and they are good. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I don't know, man. It's just, again, this workaday world. <laughs> Who has the time? I mean, you do when you're peeing, I guess. <laughs> this one was dry. I was dry as a bone on this one. It has similar themes. I think I took a lot from my last story in some of the Well, they're in the same universe, right? Descriptions this is, this of, is canon? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For the advent? Was it one of the two guys from the end of the thing? Was it McCready? Well, it could or, have been uh, McCready, I guess. <laughs> the other guy. Oh, I should have described his like, big... That's. I was thinking of the big parka, and I was yeah. like, well, you don't want to give too much away, which is hat. insane that that would give something away. <laughs> but I, I did. I was like... That's definitely the thing. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, well, I got there at least. Oh, yeah. Wait, it was McCready, which is why he's in the Santa Chronicles, right? The Christmas Chronicles? <laughs> oh, shit. He's assimilated. I like it way better now. <laughs> the Thing was a prequel to the Christmas Chronicles. <laughs> what better way to spread your... Um, Christmas cheer. Your thingness to the whole world than to assimilate Santa first. And he's going to all the houses in the world. True. Yeah, he is the ultimate vector. This is the one vector population. A good night. Oh, <laughs> 
my drifts. I want each ghoulish fiend I know to get their special gift. So listen good, my chubby friend. Lean your ear this way. Or I just might whack it off first thing Christmas Day. The headless horseman wants a gift. Bet you can't guess what. He's not only lost his head, now he's lost his butt. Hannibal the cannibal would like some Christmas punch. Then he'd like to meet your elves and have them all for lunch. Frankenstein just wants a girl wearing lace and bows. But make sure she's blonde and stacked or they'll eat your nose. Wolfman's needs are quickly met. He's not hard to please. Just recommend a real good vet. He's been getting fleas. <laughs> well, that's the list, Saint Nicholas. Weird as it may be. And you don't have to even get a thing for creepy me. All I ask is get these gifts for my friend some way. Or we'll have roasted Santa Claus for lunch on Christmas Day. Check the green cards. <laughs> hey, what's Mrs. Claus doing tonight? She's gonna be free, cause you're going to be filling my order. You better get busy, Chubbo. <laughs> Jolly old Saint Nick. Yeah!